Good morning. What is the most important question we can ever ask in life? Is it, how do I save enough money for retirement? Is it, how do I find the right job, the right spouse? Is it, how do I find fulfillment in life? Although those are important questions, I don't think any of those are the most important question that we can ask. I would argue the most important question we could ask is, who is Jesus? Yet, as important as this question is, people throughout the world have different answers to that question. The Jews of his day said that Jesus was a false Messiah who deserved to be killed for blasphemy. Muslims say that Jesus was a prophet, but he was not God, and he did not die for the sins of the world. Hindus say that Jesus was one of many enlightened mystics. Mormons would say that Jesus is the brother of Satan. Jehovah Witnesses would say that he was the first created being, the archangel, Michael. Atheists would say, well, the question is irrelevant, doesn't matter. But most Christians in America today would give one of two answers, either I don't know or he was a good moral, spiritual teacher. Our reading today is from the beloved disciple who was the most intimately familiar with Jesus, the Apostle John. In fact, Jesus entrusts the care of his mother Mary to the care of the Apostle John at the cross. And he gives the purpose of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, These accounts of Jesus are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So with that purpose in mind, John opens his gospel with a very profound prologue, which gives a very good statement about who Jesus is that has significant implications for all of our lives. Our verses from John today will tell us this. Jesus is the God-man who reveals God to man and reconciles man to God. Jesus is the God-man who reveals God to man and reconciles man to God. Now I'm going to break that statement into four parts. First, Jesus is God. Second, Jesus is man. Third, Jesus reveals God to man. And fourth, Jesus reconciles man to God. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. In your pew Bibles in front of you, that's on page 886. Gospel of John chapter 1. And I'm going to refer to a lot of verses, but I'd appreciate it if you keep your Bibles open to that section, because we'll keep coming back to this prologue. The first point I'd like to make, the text tells us that Jesus is God, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of the world. So in the beginning harks back to the words, the first words of the Bibles in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A Jew would have expected John to say, in the beginning, God. But that's not what John says. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now we'll have to wait till verses 15 and 17 to find out that the word is Jesus Christ. But even looking at these first verses, verses 1 and 2 make clear that the Word was eternal, like God. He existed before creation. It says, in the beginning, the Word was with God. The word was indicates that Jesus already existed at the beginning, doesn't it? The text does not say the Word was created or the Word began. No, the Word was. He's eternal. Verse 1 goes on to say that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, if you've ever talked to Jehovah Witnesses, they'll point to their New World translation of their Bible, and they'll say the last part of that verse is translated, the Word was a God, because there's no definite article in front of the noun for God. I won't get you into the geeky Greek of, of that. But the consensus of Greek scholars is that the text should not be translated as a, a God. Rather, the correct translation is the one that you had in your Bibles. The word was God. Mind-blowing, isn't it? Verse 3 makes clear that the word, like God, is fully creator. It gets more astounding. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It seems so astounding. It seems hard to believe, and yet I want to point you to two other great Christological passages that make similar statements about Jesus, just with slightly different wording. Keep your Bibles turned to John, at John 1, but I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the one who is preeminent over or firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Astounding. Or Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So what John tells us in John 1, that the word was God, is not really unique. He just uses different wording than the author of Colossians, Paul, and the author of Hebrews use. 
Now, no other religious leader in history, not Muhammad, not Buddha, or any Hindu leader ever claimed to be God. Yet this astounding claim is peppered throughout the New Testament by both Jesus and his disciples. I'm going to hit you with a list of verse references. Write down the references and you can go back to them later. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews, in response, picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. John chapter 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claims the name given to Moses by God at the burning bush, the name that God reveals himself as. And again, hearing this, the Jews pick up stones in order to kill Jesus for blasphemy. John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas answers the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Paul says, Christ, who is God over all. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul refers to, quote, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He says, quote, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it's quite clear the Bible says that Jesus is God. In addition to that, Jesus had many divine actions. He received worship from his disciples, worship that the Jews reserved only for God. We see that in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. He forgave sins, and he was immediately accused of blasphemy by the Jews. Mark chapter 2, verse 7. He performed over three dozen miracles, most of them in front of his opponents, and he was resurrected from the dead. Now, some people believe that Jesus must be inferior to the Father because there are verses where Jesus seems subordinate to the Father, where he seems to obey instructions from the Father. Yet the important point to remember is that that submission is voluntary. It's voluntary. He did not go to the cross unwillingly, but willingly. He was part and parcel of God's plan to rescue us. And as a result of his obedience on the cross, we read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, that the Lamb, Jesus, is exalted in heaven and is given exactly the same worship and praise as God on the throne. Jesus is God. So just because Jesus has a different role than the Father, don't make the mistake of assuming that he's inferior in nature. Now, earlier we read the Nicene Creed. That's a creed that all Protestants, all Catholics, all Eastern Orthodox, all of Christendom subscribe to. None of them would have a problem reciting that creed. 
It was established at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Gwen and I actually have visited the spot where it was developed. And it was developed to uh, rebut the heresy of a man named Arius. Arius claimed that Jesus was a lesser created God. But the Nicene Creed that we read affirmed what John and these other scriptures that I read tell us. Namely, that Jesus was, quote, true God, not created, of the same essence as the Father. Now, Oscar did the favor of putting uh, two illustrations at the back of the creed, and I'm going to refer to them because they helped me, at least, to think about who this Jesus is that we worship. And we're going to talk about the top one first. This top picture illustrates the Bible's teaching about the Trinity. You see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all of the same essence, pictured in the middle. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet, if you look at these lines on the outside, we're also taught that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. The Godhead consists of three persons, each person with different roles. Yet the three persons are one God with one essence or nature. At least that helps me. I hope it helps you. Now, we'll get to the second picture a little bit later. So Jesus is God. Now, many in the world today think of Jesus as a prophet. They'd say, well, he's a holy man, a wise teacher, a good moral leader. But I love C.S. Lewis, and in his book, Mere Christianity, he notes that the Bible simply does not permit that as a choice. That is not a description of Jesus. He says, quote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. So we really only have three choices about Jesus. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. My choice is Lord. The application from this is that because Jesus is God, we must follow and obey him as our Lord. And let's not gloss over that word Lord. Lord means master. Jesus as God demands obedience. In Luke 6.46, Jesus rebukes his disciples by saying to them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? How can we call Jesus our Lord, recognizing that he is the eternal God who created us, and not do what he tells us? Lord Jesus asked many of the disciples to abandon their jobs, their homes, and their families and to come follow him. 
Are you putting something other than Jesus first in your life? Or is Jesus truly your Lord and Master? Now, that's the first point we get from John. There's more. The second point that we get from the text is that Jesus is fully man. He is the God-man. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John chapter 1, verse 14, we read these words. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, the word that's translated dwelt there actually means He tabernacled among us. In the Exodus story, the glory of God dwelt with the people of Israel at the tabernacle, which was a tent which was moved along with them throughout their journey in the wilderness. And that the word became a real human in the flesh is such an important point that the apostle John has this to say in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. He says, Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Strong words. In his first John 1, 1, this same apostle says, that which we have seen from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It was very important to the Apostle John to emphasize not only the deity of Jesus, but also his humanity. The fact that God became man is also affirmed in the Nicene Creed that we read earlier. Yet, I have to confess, this is a mystery that's hard to explain. How can Jesus be both God and man at the same time? Because that's such a hard concept to grasp, the miracle of the incarnation, heresies arose concerning who Jesus was. One of the first ones claimed that Jesus was, I call it, God in a bod. In other words, he was a divine nature that was just hiding and animating a human body. Another heresy claimed that Jesus was schizophrenic, essentially, that he was a human person, a divine, he was a human person and a divine Jesus living in the same body. In order to refuse these heresies, hundreds of bishops gathered again, this time at the Council of Chalcedon, which is at the outskirts of Istanbul. Gwen and I have visited Chalcedon as well. And they gathered in 381 A.D. And this council, they had affirmed the Nicene Creed that we just read, and they also affirmed what John 1 teaches, namely that Jesus is fully human and fully divine in one person. Jesus is the God-man. So I have an illustration for that. At the back of your creeds, you see an illustration at the bottom. And this is a picture that is the orthodox view of the person of Jesus. And again, it's held by Protestants, by Catholics, by Eastern Orthodox. You see that the Father and the Spirit and the Son all have one substance. They are all contained in the gray area. 
But there's something unique about the Son of God. That's represented by the dashed circle. By the dashed circle. Jesus is unique in the Godhead because at the incarnation, he humbled himself. Not by getting rid of the gray substance, not by ridding himself of his divine nature, but by adding to it a human nature in the white with that little figure there. And yet he remained the one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the God-man with the emphasis on God. And he remains one person as illustrated by the single dash circle. So hopefully that helps you think about it. Now, I actually think sometimes the incarnation to me is even more of a miracle than the resurrection, or at least it's as great a miracle. How can this be? How, I cannot tell you. But the Bible affirms that it's true. For the same reason I can't tell you how he rose from the dead, except by the power of God. God can do things that are mind-blowing, and he did here. Now, sometimes in the gospel, Jesus does something that it seems like only God could do, and at other times, he seems quite human. He eats, he sleeps, he seems to lack knowledge on some things, and most important, he dies. But this is easily explained. His divine nature does what seems to be godlike, and his human nature does the things that seem human. But anything either nature is doing, it is the person of Jesus Christ doing it in the gospel. This is a great truth. I think that Jesus is also man. Because Jesus became a man, he is now able to do three really important things. Number one, he is the perfect mediator between God and man. He's the God-man. Who better to be the mediator between God and man? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Because he's a man, he is also now our sympathetic high priest who knows our weaknesses and makes offerings for us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And third, because he knows the temptations of sin, although he did not yield to those temptations, he is our advocate before the Father when we do fail and sin. We see that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. There are so many things we could go into about the fact that Jesus is God and man. But I want to focus our application on just one. The main application of the fact that Jesus was a man that I want to make is this. Since Jesus was also a man, we should study his life and emulate his life by asking the simple question, what would Jesus do? In my situation. A.W. Tozer once said, We know how God would act if He were in our place. He has been in our place. And this is why we should continue to study Jesus' life as recorded in the Gospels, and then try to take those accounts and apply them to our lives today by asking WWJD, what would Jesus do? Let me give a few examples. We should love others because Jesus first loved us and gave his life for us. 
we should try to live lives without sin because there was no sin in his life. Like Jesus, we should warn people about God's wrath against sin. For no one spoke more about the reality of hell for unrepentant sinners than did Jesus Christ. We should have compassion on the poor and the outcast of society, just as you read Jesus did with lepers, with people with illnesses, the poor, tax collectors, sinners, women, Samaritans, other outcasts of that society. Like Jesus, we should think it's better to give than to receive. Like Jesus, we should make prayer to the Father central to our lives. Like Jesus, we should rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And like Jesus, we should study and know scriptures so that we can resist the temptations of Satan, like Jesus did in the wilderness. I could go on and on, but I think you see the idea. It's important to read the Gospels. Study the life of Jesus and then emulate him as you live out his life. He was a man. He knows what it's like. Follow his example. And ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? But John tells us even more. The third point of the text is that Jesus is the God-man who reveals God to man. Jesus is the God-man who reveals God to man. John 1 begins with, In the beginning was the Word. Now, John is the only author in the Bible that refers to Jesus, in the New Testament, that refers to Jesus as the Word. But the description is deliberate, and it really comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us repeatedly, Quote, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. The word of the Lord came to Moses. The word of the Lord came to Joshua. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And then you'll read the word of the Lord came to all the Old Testament prophets. Spoken words are how God revealed himself throughout the Old Testament. But now, in Jesus, God is revealing himself even more fully. John makes this clear in the last verse of our reading. John chapter 1, verse 18. John 1, 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God, or the unique one, who is God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, who better to make God known to man than the only God who was and still is at the Father's side? John begins with, and the Word was God, and he ends this section with, the only God has made God known. Which are really, in my mind, two ways of saying the same thing. God in the flesh reveals God to man. Jesus is the Word made flesh, himself God, who is revealing God to us. In the humanity of Jesus, God is truly speaking our language. Now, Jesus reveals many things to us about God, but I actually think it's John 
chapter 1, verse 17, that tells us three very important things that he reveals to us about God. John chapter 1, verse 17. It, it reveals, Jesus there reveals God's holiness, he reveals God's grace, and he reveals God's truth. Holiness, grace, truth. John 1.17 says, For God's law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, when I read about his words and his life, he reveals just how holy God is and how far short man falls in obeying the law given to Moses. How far short we fall. He does that most in my mind when I read the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus discusses the law of Moses. And he tells us there that avoiding murder, that's one of the commandments, don't kill. But avoiding murder is not enough. We must avoid hate. Well, one of the commandments is don't commit adultery. Well, Jesus tells us avoiding adultery, that's not enough. Avoid lust. We're told in the Old Testament that we should love our neighbor, but Jesus tells us loving our neighbor's not enough. We should also love our enemy. It can be depressing when you read the Sermon on the Mount. I fall so far short of those words. In other words, Jesus is telling us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. But here's the bad news. Sin prevents men from perfectly obeying the law of Moses. Nothing wrong with the law, but something deeply wrong with man. Sin. What does God do? Well, he doesn't take back the law. What he does is he sends Jesus to us to reveal his grace to us, his grace. Grace is love. No other religion has such a God who lives among his people and then dies for them in order to rescue them. You won't find such a, such a God. Jesus' life and death is proof that God loves us and cares for us. In fact, this knowledge helps me to accept the trials and the sufferings that I face in this sinful world. Now, Gwen and I like to define grace with, with an acronym. It's a favorite in our home. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's gift of life and relationship with him through belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As man, Jesus lived the perfect life that we fail at. And the Bible says we are made right with God because of the life and death of Jesus. My favorite verse for this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. That is, paraphrasing, that God laid our sins on Christ at the cross. And that's wonderful news. But there's even more wonderful news. 
and God credits Christ's righteous life to those who belong to Jesus. He credits Christ's righteous life, the life we could never perfectly live, to those who belong to him. And finally, Jesus also reveals God's truth. In fact, Jesus not only spoke the truth, he is the truth. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth is, that God reveals to us, is that there's only one way to the Father and to life. Not many ways. It doesn't say a way. It says the way. And that is through Jesus Christ himself. And because this is truth, we can trust our lives to him. He's trustworthy. Okay, so my fourth point is that I get from the text is Jesus, the God-man, he reconciles man to God. Jesus The God-man reconciles man to God. And we see this in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of the will of God. Now, who are his people? Well, they're the Jews, the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, and the people that Jesus focused his ministry on in the gospel. But for the most part, the Jews rejected Jesus. So after that, the apostles, including Peter and Paul, took the gospel outside of Israel to the Gentiles. Well, what does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, the text tells us right here, to those who believe in his name. Now, to believe in the name of Jesus means to believe that all Jesus said and all he did was true and right, and then to put one's faith in that truth. He is who he says he is. He can do for us what he says he can do, and to trust that with your life. If one believes in the name of Jesus, you will put your trust in him. Now, I have a bad example of believing in the name of Jesus, believing in his name that might help. I was once at a leadership team building retreat at work, and we were told that the company would work better if we could all believe in and trust our coworkers. So at one point in the retreat, I was asked if I trusted my coworker, and he was asked if he was worthy of my trust. And of course, we both said yes. But then the human resource person asked uh, the coworker to get behind me. And then the human resource person told me to close my eyes and fall backwards, trusting that my coworker would catch me. Uh, my trust was only half-hearted on that day, I have to admit. Fortunately, Jesus is fully trustworthy. You can trust your life with him. So if we believe in the name of Jesus, we can have faith in him. 
and thereby become children of God. Paul told the Galatians, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So Jesus is the means by which we are reconciled to God and become children of God. Now it's interesting, one of the most important architects of the Nicene Creed that we read earlier is a man called Athanasius. And I love Athanasius, his writings. But he had this to say about Jesus. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become sons or children of God. I think that's a good summary. So in conclusion, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? To those who know themselves not to be Christians, believe in the name of Jesus so that you can become a child of God and have life eternal. To those who already believe in Jesus, take up your role as ambassadors for this God-man. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers who this Jesus is. In fact, my experience is that asking people what they think about Jesus is a great way to start a spiritual conversation. It's a great way to start a discussion. Who do you think Jesus is? But in that conversation, convey John's answer to the question of who is Jesus. Jesus is the God-man who reveals God to man and reconciles man to God. And because Jesus is the God-man, we should obey him. We should follow his earthly example. We should appreciate God's grace and believe in his name.